This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Sophie McIntosh, author of the novel The Water Cure, which was longlisted for a 2018 Man Booker Prize. The Water Cure is a dystopian novel about three sisters who are being raised on an isolated island by their father, known as King, and their mother, known only as Mother. The sisters, Grace, Leah, and Skye, are taught to fear the literal and figurative toxicity of men. King brought his family to the island to protect them from the violence and chaos that men cause on the mainland. King cannot keep his family safe forever, and just after he disappears, three strange males arrive on the island. We began the discussion with Macintosh explaining what was on her mind when she started writing the novel. So when I was writing The Water Cure, um, it was about 2016 when I wrote most of it, and it just felt like the world was becoming a very different place. I felt very kind of uncertain and a bit helpless and quite angry. And all while I was feeling these things, I was working on a novel that kind of wasn't really working. It was more of an environmental focus, and it was about a family, but it just it was something that wasn't coming together in it. And as I kind of, I guess, worked through my feelings while the world was changing so scarily and we had Brexit and things going on here in the UK, um, I kind of found myself exploring more and more the idea of what if masculinity was literally toxic? Like, what if there is a disease that men are kind of spreading and uh, that women are susceptible to? And how would that kind of manifest? And how would you keep yourself safe from this? So it kind of it started off as an abstract kind of thought, and then I decided to make it more solid. The Water Cure is about a family of five. They call the father simply King. They call the mother Mother, and then it's three daughters that are pretty far apart in age. I think the eldest is in her upper 20s, and maybe the youngest is around 12. Yeah. So yeah, Grace is 30 and Leah's in her kind of late 20s. Sky is actually 18. They live together isolated from this toxic world. The father has basically brought them to what they believe is an island. They have a shoreline and they are taught, indoctrinated really, about the toxicity of the rest of the world. And they take in women. Every once in a while, women come and they write in this sort of welcome book about their experiences with toxic men, whether it's abuse or being catcalled or potentially having a man try and kill them. And they are also undergo all of these supposed survival tactics, like put on this special dress and try to drown yourself and see how long or drown each other and see how long you can last um, because you need to be prepared for the world outside just in case they invade. So this is the backdrop when we meet these these young women. And there are some very strong correlations, I would say, or reminders of King Lear. So I'm just wondering if you could talk about the general gist of this story and maybe its relationship or conversation with other literature. Yeah, there's definitely an influence of kind of Shakespeare in there. Um, King Lear was definitely a thing for me, but also The Tempest. I think that kind of classical timeless idea of sisterhood 
of kind of mystical women of people isolated in an island that was um that was important for me but also in terms of other literature I think obviously um The Handmaid's Tale is kind of an obvious one but I think I would say obviously The Handmaid's Tale is very different to my book um because my book I always think of it as kind of a quieter dystopia um rather than one with a lot of world building it's a lot more ambiguous but um otherwise I kind of saw it in conversation with The Virgin Suicide as well uh, which is a novel that I loved growing up but I kind of wanted to have uh, the sisters speak this time rather than be spoken for and observed so there was a there was a kind of process of thinking about how I could take these books that had inspired me and that I loved and maybe subvert them a little bit and kind of give just prioritize giving voice to the sisters above everything it's ambiguous I think as a reader of this notion that the mother and father are protecting them from the rest of the world because the way that they treat them, the way that they show their love at times feels abusive. Yeah, there is that definite ambiguity. It's kind of, they've been told that this is how you keep yourself safe, but they don't know what's out there. They don't actually know if what is out there is worse than what they're subjected to. It's kind of, they don't really have a choice between the kind of, I guess the danger that they're in while they're in their home and the danger out on the mainland and part of me wants to explore the idea of how we kind of keep ourselves safe but can we ever actually be safe there are things that we kind of do to protect ourselves um, or are taught to do or, or grow up learning to do but those aren't necessarily the things that will keep us safe and in fact is trying to stay safe a fallacy really can we protect ourselves totally so in this world, some of the things that they are subject to, they are pushed underwater to see if they would survive and breathe. They're also asked to do difficult things in one of the other sisters' stead. So example, they pit the daughters against each other when maybe there's a mouse that needs to be killed or at some point something much more significant that, that needs to be killed the mother might say to the middle daughter, either you do this or I'm going to make Skye, the youngest daughter, do it. So Leah is doing these terrible things for her parent. And there's also sort of a goodness in it because she's sparing her younger sister. One thing I was trying to do with that particular therapy was the idea of the uh, the parents trying to break them down as individuals a bit and reinforce the idea of them being almost like one person the three of them as one that idea of manipulating that really strong sisterly bond into and kind of using it for their own ends because if you really love your sister you do want to do things for them which kind of go beyond self-preservation if you if you love someone a lot you will do those horrible things for them and they shouldn't have to do them but they do. And what do you think the gain is from that? I think for the parents, it kind of showed that they always had that tool that they could manipulate the sisters with. Um, but it also showed how much the sisters cared for each other and how much that love could be a force, not just for negativity, but I think for positivity too. And obviously, like no spoilers, but kind of as the book progresses and we see that the bond that the sisters share, it's the thing that is the most important in 
helping them kind of find different and maybe better ways to live. Only the eldest, Grace, was in the outside world, outside of this enclave that they've prepared. So everything they know about the world is really indoctrination from their parents. And they they have a border around their own world, around the property and the house that they live in. They can go to the ocean and eat the fish. They feel like they see sort of the the toxic clouds or the toxic feelings or are told about the toxic breath of men. And so they are isolated and can only believe what they've been told. And I was thinking a lot of, I was reading it about violence and sort of the type of violence of, they do face some physical violence, but just the violence of, of information and not having information. And what does that do when you're raising children? Yeah, it's like the outside, it could be awful, it could be terrible, we're ambiguous on that point, but if you don't give the children the tools or the ability to even look beyond and to make their own decision about whether they stay with you or go off into the, the world, I mean, I guess it's a natural parental instinct, but, you know, is it a kindness? In in this in this case, I'm not sure it is. I think it's a parental instinct we want to protect, we want to protect the children, obviously, we want to protect our family. Um, but then it's a parental in- instinct that's been twisted into something negative. So because of that, when they were teaching their girls, uh, it's sort of tormenting, whether it is talking about the water cure or, or putting their hands in ice or asking them to burn a toad or asking them to to really trust what they're doing. To me, that is a sort of violence. Is it, were you thinking of it as violence? Definitely. I think violence is throughout the book, you know, there's the kind of, there's the physical violence, there's violence of love, there's that insidious violence, that emotional violence. Um, Poor Leah, the middle sister, I always think of her as like poor Leah, because she, I guess, is the one who is inflicted upon this violence in so many ways. And it comes out in, I guess, so many ways for all of them. And then, you know, what one kind of new ways of love present themselves what do you do if like violence has always been tied up with how you experience that thing? Can you talk a little bit about the mother character? King, we hear about, he's the patriarch. He brings them to this place. He is their protector. Everything he's doing is to protect them. But he's gone. He's disappeared when we open the book. So we don't see him on the page. We hear about him. The mother is there. Can you talk about her character and the things that she wants and how she wants to sort of preside over this world without the father. So Mother, to me, is an interesting character because I think a lot of readers um, have a really strong reaction to her. And I think it's because she is, um, she's the matriarch and she should be on the girl's side. But I don't think she is. Um, she Throughout the book, she is kind of the instigator of, the cruel cures in the absence of king she's the one we see in real time maintaining the status quo she's kind of very complicit in how the girls are treated and how they're isolated from the world and you know we expect mothers to be these maternal uh, figures who love us and who help us and who nurture us but while in some ways she does seem to do that things there's always an edge 
where we know that she's not doing it for the right reasons necessarily. She's she's quite a poisonous character, but I think she does she does care for the girls in her own twisted way. It's just everything on the island has been twisted to such a point that even kind of the most everyday instincts and relationships can't really be taken at face value. One of the things the girls are told, they're told to hold their feelings and emotions at bay. They're told that feelings are toxic and that they shouldn't have them. And they're prepped and um, almost go through these gymnastic-like experiences to not feel. One thing that I enjoyed while I was writing the book was having the freedom because it is speculative to turn things that I thought about or experienced in the real life into kind of I guess less less abstract and actual concrete things so I think that idea of your feelings being too much being too dangerous is something that a lot of people can identify with but in the book it's taken to the next level it's solidified I mean it's kind of turned into the thing your your feelings will literally be the downfall of you the thing that will kind of destroy your body I, I liked kind of being able to do that with them um, and that's not to say that men obviously either don't have feelings that they can be destroyed by either because that wasn't my intention. But I think just for the sake of the book, it was and playing with those, uh, playing with those ideas that somehow women's bodies are weaker or they're told, told that they're weaker, which is like not the actual, not the same as them actually being weaker. Yeah, that was kind of just, it kind of just fed into the same, that same ideology that the girls have been told their entire life that, the things that maybe are the things that make them strong are the things that can destroy them. And the mother's in on this. And I wondered at times if she was the real enemy in the book. Um, I think definitely that's a fair thing to say because she does orchestrate so much of it. Um, And it's not, I mean, I worry about people uh, seeing the book as a kind of anti-men, anti-men kind of rant, when actually I think the women in the book are also as dangerous and complicated as the men too. Um, there is no kind of easy line between perpetrator and, and victim in the book, I don't think, um, just like there isn't always in real life either. Um, sometimes women can you know, just because a woman is a woman doesn't mean she's not going to inflict harm on other women. So that was the kind of thing I was trying to get across with Mother. I think she is the real villain. Well, what happens about three quarters of the way through the book is that three males wash up on shore. There's two adults and one child. And I want to make sure I have their names right. So is it Lou, Gwill, and James? They're probably Welsh, and they probably sound better coming out of your mouth. <laughs> we pronounce that Welsh, uh, but it's really hard to say. So I just, yeah, everyone calls him Liu, and that's totally fine. <laughs> how, how do you say it, though? So we have the beautiful version and mine. Shell, <laughs> um, It's a very uh, hard noise to make unless you've kind of grown up making it. It's like, it's hard to explain. It's like, <laughs> So when they show up on the shore... Um, there's both this fear and and kind of an intoxication, at least from some of the characters. You know, we we differentiate Leah and Skye and Grace more once they show up because we're seeing them in a situation they've never done before and each of their characters has a certain way of responding. And Leah, 
is who we read the story through her point of view for most of it. And she is probably, she is the most rebellious from the way that they grew up in that she wants to know these people. She wants to learn about them. She is eager for love. Celia from the beginning is set up as a sister who is treated probably the worst. Um, She's the most emotional. She's the most needy. She hasn't been treated fairly she hasn't been giving given as much love as the others and so this makes her I think particularly vulnerable and when the men wash up that vulnerability leaves her kind of open to I guess their attentions in the way that the other sisters aren't because they've been obviously growing up their whole life they've been told that men are really dangerous um you, you shouldn't go near them but at the same time, that kind of Leah has that instinct, which almost overrides everything she's been told, because all she wants is some kind of human connection and some love. So I think because they had been brought up in this world that men and they had been told that men were the most dangerous thing that I needed the men to enter at some point. So we could kind of, I guess, some, get some way to discovering like if what they've been told is true. And there's only so long that you can keep someone isolated from the outside world. The outside world is going to intrude wherever it is. And that was interesting for me, that idea of even if you do have this safe haven, how do you keep it safe? And what happens when the outside world does inevitably intrude upon it? And to me, it made me think about what is innate within us. Like you could live your whole life indoctrinated with this idea that men are toxic and that you shouldn't interact with them, that you should stay away, you should maybe protect yourself at all costs. But what else is innate within us? Because Leah was so eager for love and touch, and she realized touched um, helped keep her alive, and that at our most base of being a human we want connection with other people. And she had this romantic sexual urges for Lou. There are just some things I think, which are just so intrinsic to who we are as people and yeah, being touched, having some kind of connection, any form of intimacy. I think you can, you can't indoctrinate that out of a person as much as you try. There'll always be, I think that desire to be loved or, to find that kind of intimacy somehow and so almost for Delia they've kind of they've made they've made her more of a problem by I guess trying to toughen her up in their own way and punishing her they've actually kind of punished her in the way that has driven her exactly into the arms of these these strangers washed up on the beach who are showing her attention. Did you ever struggle with that notion thinking about male toxicity in no way is what you did pat or predictable, but that going to the most basic urge of, of course, there's going to be some love interest there. Um, One reader said something to me recently that I thought was really interesting, which is that while reading the book and particularly reading about Leah, it has struck a chord for them because if you're a heterosexual woman entering into a relationship with a man or going on a date, then at least at first there's always that sense of danger or you know so many women are killed by kind of intimate partners and it's a kind of violence that maybe we do have to reckon with but then it's not like we're going to stop doing it 
so that was a kind of interesting angle for me thinking about that and how that ties into the kind of larger idea of the love and the relationship it's easy to be absolute it's easy to say all men are bad or the world is completely toxic it's much more difficult and much more gray to say well all men are bad but then there's these five that are really good they're looking out for women they they support us and it's the same today in our political situation and and wanting to draw absolutes and finding so much of the gray areas there's definitely something on my mind while writing the book because I don't want to deal in absolutes at all I don't want it to be this polemic about how literally every man in the world is terrible but the yeah navigating that gray area between the things we know and the people we love the people you know the, the men I know in my life who are amazing and wonderful and then you know men in my life who, have met who are not amazing and wonderful and men in positions of power men who use this power differently I guess we're exposed to this gray area all the time and all throughout our lives and that kind of hum of having to be conscious is just something that I think I've, I've grown up with my whole life and I think lots of women have too even um, in decisions like I don't know going for a run or walking home at night or something just always knowing that everything will probably be fine but there is that little electric danger kind of always lingering there sometimes it can be really hard to explain that to men because they can get very defensive and be like oh it's not it's not like you're going to be attacked every day and stuff but it's just I don't know I don't think that well, on my, on my lovely residency, for example, I went for a run in the forest and I kind of went from being like, oh, I'm, I'm by myself. This is amazing to being like, I'm by myself. Um, no one knows I'm here. And this isn't like necessarily the safest thing for me to do. I should probably like head back or let someone know where I am. <laughs> and just having to, you know, always have that little little blip of consciousness about what you are doing. One of the things that this family does is they create this refuge for women who are on the run from toxic men in specific. And they have a welcome book. And throughout the pages, you have little paragraphs, maybe two or three sentences of what they were running from or what they did. Can you talk about this aspect of of the book and the family taking them in and how they tried to treat these women, what they did? So for me, the welcome book was a way to get a bit more detail about the outside world because it's so focused on the world of the sisters and the community. And that was a decision on my part. But I knew that we had to get a little bit of context about what was happening outside. So for me, the welcome book was a way to kind of get testimonies from women who were experiencing this violence of the world outside and the danger women who had come to the island to be looked after. It was a way for me to flesh it out without giving too much away, just kind of give little hints. And some of the hints are very similar to what we have in our world today, to kind of what um, experiences a woman have now in our world, but others are kind of edging more towards that kind of dystopic idea of the, the actual toxicity, the sickness, and how that would affect women physically. Right. So here's just one at random. Is speculative fiction something that you've written before and will write again? Or was this more of a deviation? I've written before and I think I will continue to write it. I think I'm just, I'm really interested in 
writing a world that's like ours but with restrictions upon it and you can have a lot of fun within those restrictions or do things that you maybe couldn't do with more straightforwardly realist fiction um I just I think I just don't have that knack that some people do I'm thinking like for, for example like Sally Rooney who writes this incredible very compelling realist fiction and mine just comes out really boring and as a writer I think it's a it's kind of it's kind of important to know your limitations and know what you're good at and I'm like yeah I'm just not gonna ever write an incredible dialogue based very mundane kind of novel I'm always gonna be interested or have my attention caught in the things that are more fantastical and have an element of the surreal and the speculative and the science fiction-y and that's okay. Can you read a passage that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to read a passage from the beginning of The Changeling by Joy Williams. There was a young woman sitting in the bar. Her name was Pearl. She was drinking gin and tonics and she held an infant in the crook of her right arm. The infant was two months old and his name was Sam. The bar was not so bad. Normal looking people sat around her eating pretzel logs. The management advertised it as being cool, and it was. There was a polar bear of leaded glass hanging in the centre of the window. Outside, it was Florida. Across the street was a big white shopping centre full of white sedans. The heavy white air hung visibly in layers. Pearl could see the layers very clearly. The middle layer was all dream and misunderstanding and responsibility. Things moved about at the top with a little more arrogance and zip, but at the bottom was the ever-moving present. It was the present, it had been the present, and it was always going to be the present. Pearl was usually conscious of this. It made her pretty passive and indecisive. Can you tell me why you chose that? I really love Joy Williams and have done for a long, long time, and I just think it's an introduction for me, of, of a novel, you, you you read it and it starts off kind of like any other book. She's there sitting in a bar in Florida and she's drinking a gin and tonic. But then things take a turn for the weird so quickly. And even in the extract I just read, the last little bit where she starts talking about, you know, the the kind of the air, the layers of it. And I guess going into kind of more metaphysical area, we realise, oh, it's not just going to be a book about a woman in a bar drinking a gin and tonic there's something a lot weirder happening there's something a lot so much weirder stuff to come and that makes me really excited that you could go so quickly you could subvert expectations so early on into a novel and I think she has a way of seeing things that no other writer does it makes me I just I just I just love it I just love how new her images feel can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft I'm going to read a piece from The Water Cure, which is near the end of Leah's section. And I say a prayer for Grace, for her cold body and cold hands and cold heart, for her success where I have always failed, for the dirt behind her ears, for her hair filling my hands when I braid it, for her brutal honesty, for the animal smell of her body, for her distance. I say a prayer while wondering how I could ever have thought that we were two parts of the same person, knowing I would do anything to go back there, to be there with her again, 
our hands clasped tight, held under the water by our father and the light ribboning around us. I could have died there with her face close to mine and her pursed mouth and it would have been all right. It would have been a small mercy. But our father always brought us back to the surface. It lifted us into the sunlight and hot air as we coughed the water from our mouths. Can you tell me why you chose that? I chose that one because that was a piece that I didn't get right until the very end of the drafting process. I am very much a drafter and redrafter when it comes to writing. Like I will, I will go over something a lot. I will rewrite it a lot. And so that part for me just needed to really, I guess, encapsulate what, what Grace meant to Leah, needed to encapsulate who Grace was in a short amount of time and to get this really kind of pure emotional charge going. So it just, I kept kind of messing with it and messing with it until eventually I got it in the state it was now. And it just made her feel so much more real to me um, than she had done before. Where do you write? So at the moment I write either in a little corner of my living room, I live in Leighton in East London, um, or I go to a local coffee shop uh, because there are quite a nice one, there are quite a few nice ones near where I live. And I generally choose one without Wi-Fi. I quite like getting out of the house and seeing other human beings. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I really like to be outside in green space, uh, which, you know, it can be hard in London, but there are some nice parks around. So I tend to go running or I go for a long walk. Um, most of my close friends aren't actually writers. So I also just kind of like to hang out with them and talk about something that isn't books for a while. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Sometimes I show uh, friends who also write or I show my partner. Um, but quite often my agent is the first person to see anything new. Um, I really trust her taste. Um, we've worked together for several years, so I know that she will always tell me if something's good or if something is not quite there or a bit misguided. How have you dealt with rejection? Just by being quite pig-headed, really. Um, I try and let rejection spur me on to be better. I think, you know, partly out of artistic pride, but there is also an element of, of doing out of spite as well. But it's kind of in my nature to be a perfectionist. I can't let rejection make me crumple. And I don't think any writer can, because if we did, there'd be no writers at all. But I'm definitely getting more relaxed as time goes on. I've kind of come to a state where I know you can't please everyone and that my work isn't for everyone and that's completely fine. And what is your favourite word? Uh, my favourite word is kerfuffle, which is a British word that means a commotion. Um, and it's not particularly one I use in writing, but I do use it a lot in speaking. My grammar is from the Welsh Valleys and there's a lot of quite spectacular vernacular that I really like. And... One of my favourites she uses a lot is chopsy, which means someone who won't shut up or is being rude, which I, I, I kind of love that also. <laughs> You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Sophie McIntosh, author of The Water Cure. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.